Hello listeners and welcome to the first episode in a brand new companion podcast series to celebrate the sensational new thriller from Matthew Blake. I am of course talking about Anna O. My name is Lex and I will be your host for this podcast. Allow me to introduce our very own sleeping beauty, Anna Ogilvie, who hasn't opened her eyes in four years, not since that night at the farm where she was found asleep with a kitchen knife in her hand, her clothes bloodstained, and the bodies of her two best friends lying close by. She'd committed the crime of the century, but nothing and no one could wake her from the nightmare. For those of you who are new to the Anna O murder case, here are the facts. It was 3.10 a.m. on the morning of August 30th, 2019, when Anna Ogilvie, the 25-year-old daughter of a senior shadow government minister and founding editor of magazine Elementary, was found asleep in her cabin at a farmhouse retreat in Oxfordshire with a blood-soaked 20-centimetre kitchen knife. In the neighbouring cabin were the bodies of her best friends, Douglas Butte, 26, and Indira Sharma, 25. Both victims were found dead at the scene, each with 10 stab wounds. Anna's fingerprints were the only ones found on the knife, and the victim's blood was discovered on her clothes. A WhatsApp message on Anna's phone contained a partial confession. I'm sorry. I think I've killed them. Despite numerous attempts to rouse the suspect, Miss Ogilvie remained asleep and unresponsive. All tests proved normal. She was alive. Her body was functioning. The mystery illness causing her deep sleep was impossible to identify. Four years later, Anna O is still yet to open her eyes. Believers in Anna's innocence call her Anna O. Believers in her guilt dub her sleeping beauty. But no one can take their eyes off the story. According to an online source, at Suspect 8, there's a startling new development in the Anna O case. A sleep expert on London's Harley Street, Dr. Benedict Prince, has been called in at the 11th hour to wake Anna for trial. We all wait with bated breath to see if he is successful. But the question remains, in the court of public opinion, is Anna O guilty? Will she ever wake up? And if so, will she pay for her alleged crimes or be free to kill again? This is the premise of the thrilling new fictional novel by Matthew Blake, published by HarperCollins in 2024. Now, before you relax thinking that this gruesome murder case I've just described is only make-believe, let me correct you. The details of the Anna O case are actually based on some real-life and very creepy sleep cases. I was lucky enough to speak to Matthew, the wicked wordsmith, about the real-life crimes that inspired the creation of Anna O. So, Matthew, before we dive into the specifics that informed Anna O, let's talk about true crime in general. Would you say you are a consumer of true crime? Yes, it's an invaluable resource for all thriller writers. I think it'd be rare to find a crime thriller writer who isn't fascinated by what's actually out there. And um, we're living in really a golden age for documentary making, particularly with Netflix and the way they've elevated the true crime documentary to a sort of art form, really. So, yeah, huge consumer. The most fascinating thing is always the the sort of enemy within, if you like, the person within a small community who mm. is trying to bring harm to the small community. That's always the, and that's the basis of every whodunit, effectively. That's the basis of every sort of true crime piece that really... Um, I think chimes with a lot of people because that's everyone lives in a community. Everyone, you know, the world is made up of small blocks of people from families to villages to towns to cities. So 
the the most dangerous thing really is the idea of the enemy within the idea that there's a could there could be a killer next door who looks just like you acts just like you and you mm. can't tell you know you you have absolutely no idea what's what's really going on in their lives and i think that is particularly the conundrum that uh, drew me to the idea of killing someone while you're sleepwalking is that it's again it's sort of that idea times a hundred which is the person in front of you has their eyes open and looks totally conscious but isn't it's the it's the mask it's is the fact that you cannot tell what's going on in their mind the mind is the sort of great mystery about it all um and i think uh all great true crime stories have that to a degree but the anything with sleepwalking or anything where someone's eyes are open but they're not fully conscious has that to even greater extent and it's that is that fundamental mystery of what's going on in someone else's mind you know the the reason why i think crime thrillers are the most popular genre in the world really and why um true crime documentaries have such a hold is that it it um you know it goes back to the most elemental parts of being human which is survival which is someone within your own community or people within your own community who are looking to damage or hurt other people you know it's the most fundamental part of being a parent or you know mm-hmm. being responsible for someone so it, it's it's always going to resonate extremely widely so i think that's why these true crime cases do have such a sort of hold on our collective imagination because they do sort of go down fundamentally to what it means to 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 survive so on hearing that anna o falls into a deep sleep for four years my first reaction as a reader was to presume that this was all make-believe something that you'd imagined as a work of fiction but as i will discuss with matthew next this deep sleep coined as resignation syndrome is actually scientifically true and something that's taken place in real life So let's jump into this shocking and terrifying case. There's an article mentioned called The Trauma of Facing Deportation, which was published in 2017 in The New Yorker, and it details resignation syndrome as we know it. Yes. So I'm going to tell you a summation of the the article, but the article will also be linked in the show notes because there is obviously lots of important detail that I have missed here, um, and I would encourage you all to go and read it as in a way you can. So this article details the horrific story of hundreds of young refugee children falling unconscious after being informed that their families were to be expelled from their current country of residence, where they had built their lives, made friends, and attended schools. It was a phenomenon dubbed upgiven hit syndrome, or resignation syndrome. And according to The New Yorker, it was said to only exist in Sweden and only in refugees. The Swedish referred to their sleeping children as de apatiska, they apathetic. In 2015, Georgie's family were rejected by the Swedish Board of Migration and told to leave, to go back to Russia. Upon receiving this news, Georgie, one of the only Swedish speakers in his family, retreated to bed. He was taken to hospital after four days of not eating and after not having spoken for a full week. Upon admission to hospital, all of his reflexes were intact and his pulse and BP were normal. He showed no response to caregiving or even having a feeding tube inserted through his nose, a procedure which would have been uncomfortable at the very least. Even though hundreds of children were experiencing this, the deportations in Sweden continued. Georgie's neighbour, a Russian girl called Rebecca, was given the diagnosis of being apathetic three years before Georgie, just as her family were also rejected by the migration board. A friend of both families, Alina Zapolskaya, had had practised medicine in Russia 
and was reported upon Georgie's first day in bed to say that she knew it was the same sickness that Revka had suffered from. After years had passed, a 76-page document on treating upgiven head syndrome advised that the patient would not recover until their families had been given permission to remain in Sweden. The Swedish parliament passed a temporary act that gave 30,000 people whose deportations were pending the right to have the migration board review their applications again. The board began allowing apathetic children and their families to stay. Over a year later, and two weeks after hearing his mother read a letter revealing a decision that allowed them to stay in Sweden, Georgie woke up. Of his experience, Georgie now tells The New Yorker that he felt he were in a glass box with fragile walls deep in the ocean. If he spoke or moved, he thought it would cause the glass to shatter. The water would pour in and kill me, he said. And then there was one quote that I really loved from this article that I wanted to include. And it says, never had ethics of compassion had such power fed by vague historical guilt. This was the whole image of Sweden, a country dripping in wealth, but prepared to deport the most defenseless. And that's Karen Johannesson, a Swedish historian. So that is a hugely powerful story. And as I've said, the full version of it is in the show notes. So please do go and read it. Matthew, tell me how you came across that article and the real life examples of resignation syndrome. Well, it was all came out of the research and podcasts, and uh, I got particularly fascinated by the idea of mystery illnesses. And there's um, been a series of great books written by the neurologist called Suzanne O'Sullivan, who, uh, if anyone is interested in mystery illnesses or as she calls them, functional neurological disorders, I would recommend go and read her collection of books because that thinks about three in total where she has case studies of real life examples and. As a mystery writer, you're always looking for real-life things that have that inherent mystery in them. And obviously, a mystery illness has that sort of pre-packaged for you, really, because no one, someone's displaying all these symptoms, but no one knows is the cause. So um, I got fascinated by reading up about that. In Susanna Sullivan's book, she talks about the, the children in Sweden, but also lots of other examples in Kazakhstan and other places in the world where... Is the idea that uh, communities have lost hope. I thought that was that's fundamentally her the sort of connective glue that seems to be true amongst all the communities where people have found resignation syndrome. And that struck me as just such a fascinating idea. You know, I think um, I'm particularly interested in the sort of division between the brain and the mind, and how even though we can explain a lot of things that happen in the brain, we're still quite clueless about. The idea of the mind as a sort of bigger entity and um so yeah i just got very interested in resignation syndrome that's when i came across the article in the new yorker that's where i came across all the other articles obviously for my own professional purposes the idea of someone falling into a deep sleep and the idea that that is actually scientifically true and that you can have a sort of mythic deep sleep was just an extraordinary moment when I found that that, were, that's, that was true because it seemed to me that you get a huge amount of that in myth or in um, fairy tale. Mm. The idea of communities falling into a deep sleep is there if you look for it in some of the greatest stories ever written. So the idea that there were real-life contemporary examples of this happening and no one knew really what caused it was just mind-blowing for me, really, and that's what sort of sparked the whole... The whole book but um yeah the more you get into it and um Susanna O'Sullivan in her book she goes to all these communities she interviews all the parents she interviews some of the patients some of whom have woken up she goes into the background of these communities and 
I mean, it, it, her end conclusion in part, I think, is that you almost need to have a completely different understanding of the mind and in terms of some ways medicine and the way in which the mind mm. and the body interact and that we're stuck in a very old-fashioned model of a complete divide between sort of physical health and mental health and people often talk about things like parity of esteem to try and get esteem between the two whereas she's sort of almost looking at the interaction of mental health and physical health um mm -hmm. not two separate things but actually one is impacting the other so yeah i think it's just it's a fascinating area i can't begin to pretend that i have more than a a, you know a surface knowledge of it and there are some real experts out there who know so much more than I do but it is just mesmerizing when you get into it you're so right I think the thing that blew my mind the most um in this project so far is that I was a, vaguely aware of you know medical mysteries and functional neurological disorders on a on a silo basis on like yes. an individual like one person in one hospital having this thing that nobody quite understands. But it was really the New Yorker article that hammered home that this happens to societies. It happens yes. to groups yeah. of people. That yeah. was the bit that truly I, you know, all of my medical knowledge that I've, you know, got from Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> complete, I was just like, I didn't even, I couldn't even fathom how this could happen. Yeah. And the idea that it can be contagious or that there's all sorts of social things going on that, again, just are beyond even the most trained, even the most well-qualified neurologists and psychiatrists and psychologists. So it does, I think, in some ways take you back to the start of psychology, to Freud, the studies in hysteria, mm -hmm. to um, that idea that in those case stories he is investigating mysteries either they lend themselves to that detective quality where you're trying to go from symptoms to a cure very much to be honest like a Sherlock Holmes short stories where he gets presented with the symptoms of a uh, someone and then he has to use his powers of deduction to go back and find the cure i.e the 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 clue that reveals the truth so yeah I think that's that is that is fascinating and um, the study of the mind is fascinating and I hope I get some of that flavor and texture and fascination that comes through in the book I mean um, and uh, that people will go off and explore all those things further. Matthew makes a really interesting point just there about the division of mind and psyche something that is a huge theme for resignation syndrome and the case of Anna O. The principal question driving Anna O which by the way will have you wanting to speak to everyone whilst you're reading this book is can you be guilty of a crime when you committed it in your sleep? Did Anna O really know what she was doing when she killed her two best friends while sleepwalking? How can you ever be sure? And more terrifyingly, can you ever truly know what you do in your sleep? What is our mind in control of? And is our psyche something different? Here's a snippet of another conversation that I've had with Matthew, where we discuss the case of Kenneth Parks and the differences between actus rea and mens rea. So in my understanding, and again, anybody who's listening, I have absolutely no qualifications. I have just read some things on the internet. That is my qualification. Yes. I think in my understanding, the actus rea is, did you or not, did you or did you not physically commit this crime? Yes. And the mens rea is, did you actually intend yes. on committing this yeah. crime? And that intention is discussed a lot in the article while you were sleeping just to give it its full 
kind of citation. It's from a magazine called Neuroethics, and it details the enigma of legal responsibilities of violence during parasomnia, which in layman's terms is being violent while sleepwalking, which is obviously highly important to the conundrum at the centre case for for our Anna O. Yes, yes. How much weight did you give the legal research into this? We've talked a lot about the kind of medical side, but when it becomes a crime, this act of violence, obviously in our in the book, we've got some uh, some legal things to deal with. So yes. where did you start on that one? My sort of writing principle that everything should be as accurate as it possibly can be. I got very interested in all that and hopefully ensured that that was all accurate. I think the book does reference a lot of real-life cases of um, people who did stand trial, having committed murder, citing the sleepwalking defence, both the famous cases all over the world, but particularly in the US and the UK, and the way in which people can end up with extremely different outcomes. You know, some people... The sleepwalking automatism defence is accepted and therefore they're not punished to the full extent of the law, as in other cases it's not believed at all, and then they are put in prison for a, for a very long time. So I was, I mean, that disparity fascinated me, the way in which juries clearly struggle to decide whether someone was sleepwalking or they weren't sleepwalking. There's, you know, that gives you two, any dramatist or novelist is always looking for an argument that's got compelling arguments on both sides. There's, there's it's shades of grey. And uh, so I did a lot of research on that. I mean, for anyone who's interested, an amazing Wikipedia page, actually, with all this stuff on, which is cited in the book, where you get a complete summary of all of this, and you can click through and see about all the real trials and find um, articles and things. But it's it's terrifying in the sense that uh, there's no consensus on it, but it's also fascinating because there's such disagreement amongst the experts. I mean, um, even as far as I've been able to find out, even they haven't decided quite what the answer should be. Um, so, yeah, no, it really, really is is fascinating. You're so right. When I was reading whilst you were sleepwalking, I was assuming that I would get to the end of the the journal and then there would be a, a conclusion answer yes. of this is the way that we run our legal decision making around this, but there, there purely isn't. No. And one case that you do reference in the book that I would just like to read a little summary of now because I think it's really interesting is also cited in the While You Were Sleepwalking journal. On the 23rd of May in 1987, Kenneth Parks rose from his bed and wandered out of his house to his car. He drove 14 miles to the home of his mother and father-in-law. Upon arriving at their home, he removed a tire iron from the back of their car and entered the house. He proceeded to beat his mother-in-law to death and choke his father-in-law. A blood-spattered mess, he then drove to the local police station. and a disorientated, confused manner, he told the police he, quote, thought he killed someone. Though confused, he managed to identify his in-laws, murmuring that it was, again, quote, all his fault. Parks was tried for one charge of murder and one charge of attempted murder. His defence claimed that during the entire episode, he was sleepwalking, and later he was committed of all charges. The article explains his being acquitted based on the fact that he was incredibly stressed, because at the time he was also facing charges for an entirely separate embezzlement trial. Mm-hmm. which I think if we were thinking about this as a TV show, because that is what the predominance of our readers will have experience of. Nobody, I hope, has experienced anything like this in their own lives. So think of it this as a TV show. If Kenneth was a character who was separately being investigated for embezzlement, 
and then also happened to kill his mother-in-law and attack his father-in-law, you would say, no, he's lying. He unfortunately committed both of these crimes. But this article is stating that the amount of mental stress that a person can be under can dramatically change who you are whilst you're awake and whilst you're asleep. Kenneth and his family actively described he has absolutely no reason to dislike his his in-laws. There was nothing in Kenneth's history that would have ever pointed towards this behavior and especially this behavior towards his in-laws. So the fact that this happened and even then the fact that he was acquitted for it is absolutely wild. Yeah, and I think, I mean, that again was one of the issues that I looked at in the book about um, what triggers sleepwalking, say, for instance, uh, alcohol does, can or can do, and to what extent people who are sleepwalkers, if they drink heavily or if they are, you know, to what extent, again, can you look at the idea of culpability as the no culpability, as the some culpability? And this discussion goes, you know, right back to someone like Aristotle. There's a quote from him about how culpable people might be if they have a sleeping disorder. So it's nothing new in some ways, but it's still a fascinating issue. You know, I mean, what might we do when we sleep, but then what might we do to cause us not to sleep? You know, what might what might we be doing that brings on these episodes and how how responsible are we for for doing those things that bring out bring the episodes to life in a sense i mean i don't think there are any answers but it's there are just amazing questions and i the book just tries to ask those questions really and and um but always within the context of the really shocking real life cases that have actually happened and you just don't need to make them up because they're all there i mean they're all they're far more shocking than i could dream of so at this point, I know that Matthew is a huge research buff, but how did Anna O oh come from all of this reading and researching? Here, I ask him about Bertha Pappenheim, the only thing to come from a Google search for Anna O oh in the summer of 2023. The original um, sort of inspiration for the name Anna O oh and for that whole area came because I was listening to um uh it was an interview with someone who'd written a book about freud's patients uh so the real life patients who got well semi-fictionalized really in his case studies and given these pseudonyms these these uh famous names like anna o or the wolf man or the rat man or um trying to find out whether the real life person really bore much correspondence with how freud or Freud represented them and I thought that was fascinating because I thought to be for someone like Bertha Pappenheim to be famous and to become sort of almost infamous, but under someone else's pseudonym for you. So Anna Rowe is what she's called. It's the first case study in um, Freud and Breuer's very famous book, Studies in Hysteria, which was the sort of start of the psychoanalytic method and really almost the start of psychology full stop if you like um and basically it's a series of case studies they're written a bit like detective stories to be honest psychological detective stories where patients have these symptoms and freud and brewer are trying to figure out what causes them what's the uh, they call it the biography of a psychosis so you know um they give each of their patients a, a catchy pseudonym and to disguise their identity and yeah, with Bertha Pappenheim, it's this idea of hysteria in the late 19th century, all women at this stage um, displaying signs which no doctor can diagnose, 
what is the cause of it? And Freud and Brewer come in and develop their talking cure and basically therapy, as we would now understand it, as a way to probe the mysteries of the mind. So I thought Anna Rowe was a, such an iconic name that I shamelessly stole it. But actually, it's the case, the structure of those case stories, which also was hugely inspiring in the book. There are case notes about patient X, which were directly inspired by the way these case studies are presented, and presenting it as a mystery, you know, present the, the who is this person, who's the reality behind the pseudonym, and how do you investigate the mysteries of what's going on in their head. Matthew, how did you decide what to include and what to leave out, especially with your passion of making everything as true to life as possible? Well, I mean, it, it all had to be in the service of the story. So, I mean, it's a thriller. It's, you know, the chapters are very short. The scenes are very quick. I want the reader to be absolutely thrilled and entertained and be you know, reading the entire book in a single sitting, ideally. So everything had to service that, and I hope nothing, um, I wouldn't put anything in that would ever get in the way of the reader experience. Ah, it's like a dressing on a salad or something. It's, it's simply to add flavour, to make it nicer, to make it more real, to enhance the reader experience. I mean, it's not a non-fiction book. It's not a sort of uh, study of, of all these cases in that sense. It's a fantastic pacey story but I think as with all all great thrillers that I enjoy you want to learn something as well and I think um all the great thrillers if you think about them through history have always been rooted in real threats real danger real things and there's nothing more dangerous there's nothing more threatening than the enemy being your own mind effectively the the weird process of your own your own your own head and so that's what's explored in all these cases and that's where they're they're sort of referenced no i think it it must be kind of a true crime obsessive's dream to be able to get lost in all of this research but then also a very important writer's tool because you've written a character who is a forensic sleep expert you know you've written characters who are journalists who need to know all of this information exactly. so the fact that you have to do the research is both a pro and a con <laughs> like <Yeah>. it works <laughs> yeah well again i mean most a lot of the the real life stuff comes from either ben who is the the sleep expert or through anna when she's investigating these pieces um in her in her notebook so again, it's all in the service of the character. It's all to be more authentic to the character themselves. I mean, uh, I'm sure we've all read books, and I it's one of the sort of pet hates, I guess, of of thriller readers is when you read a thriller where a character's meant to be an expert on something or they're meant to have some sort of knowledge, and yet it seems as if they don't know anything more than than the average reader it just doesn't feel credible it, it and it sort of undermines the the menace and credibility of the book so i desperately didn't want that to happen and you know if you've got a forensic sleep expert they should know a lot about sleep and if you've got a really good investigative journalist who's writing a piece that's going to make their career they should be pretty tenacious in hunting down the the stories and finding out the truth so i think everything in it is always governed by the characters and what's true to them as a character. Like, how did you 
curate your research down to where you wanted to be? Well, it was a challenge because, I mean, there's so much amazing stuff out there. I mean, you could spend your entire life, and indeed people do spend their entire lives researching sleep and sleep crime. And um, But I think I turned it to my advantage in some ways in the sense that because there's such a wealth of information out there, you can pick all the most interesting things from for a thriller writer to, to use and put them together. So in some ways, I felt the, the volume of material was a great bonus really rather than getting sort of submerged within the the a book list so yeah it was fantastic really I mean, there's so many great things out there a lot of it's very accessible if you're not a sort of trained neurologist you know there's lots of everyone's so interested in sleep that there's lots of books written um for the general reader i love thrillers that are so real that you don't know where the the fiction comes in and that was my aim here, to make it so real, to make it so authentic that you, you can't tell where I've made something up. So if that sends people down lots of research rabbit holes and um, gets them thinking about their own sleep and what's possible, then then I think the book's done its job. And I'm so excited because in the next few weeks, we are going to get to introduce our Anna O read-alongers to all of these characters yes. with their their knowledge and their backstory and their what happens when they come together and I'm so excited I almost can't wait I feel like well you've obviously been waiting a lot longer because you <laughs> wrote the book <laughs> but it is the exact book that when you finish it you have to talk to someone about it exactly well that was always the aim that was always what I hoped to do all the readers I've you've uh, got early proof copies have said that that everyone's got something to say about their own sleep stories, their own sleep psychology, what they, their partners, their children, their parents, the things they've been battling with. I think what turns out is we are a sort of a world of closet sleepwalkers. I think it's something that people don't talk about, but believe me, when you get them talking, people don't stop. So it's, uh, I think it's something that's absolutely there and i hope this book will get everyone talking about it if you'd like to be one of the first to get into this propulsive powerful novel about the case of a young woman who commits murder in her sleep then you can order anna own now from the links in our show notes and in the transcripts which will always be available on our website thetandemcollective.co.uk Make sure you follow our podcast to ensure you receive a notification when our next episode goes live, where we'll have even more insight into the world of Anna O, just for you.